We are live. Welcome aboard. My name is Josh Gilliland, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. We are here to go full geek and talk about the last two episodes of Star Trek Lower Decks with Crisis Point and No Small Parts. With me on this journey are two great friends, and I will ask each to introduce themselves, Nari Ely and Steve Chu. Nari? Uh, my name is Nari Ely. I am not a founding member, but a really happy to join member of the Legal Geeks. Uh, I work for the U.S. courts uh, in Washington, D.C., and that's really all I can say. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Josh. Always happy to be here. Um, so I'm Steve Chu, and I am a longtime member um, of the Legal Geeks, a uh, very proud longtime member, and I am um, really honored to have been with uh, the group and see us grow and just have fun. And this is um, awesome. And I am uh, an attorney for the federal government. Uh, I'm an assistant United States attorney. And I, I won't say much more than that, but uh, I, I get to handle a lot of interesting stuff, um, none more so than the things that we see and discuss here in these, uh, in these legal geek sessions. So. There's many attorneys who grew up watching Star Trek, and some of those attorneys are now judges. And Star Trek is a wonderful foil for being able to discuss the law, ethics, and it just makes people feel good. There is so much joy to Star Trek. I, I watched Deep Space Nine and Voyager in college and law school, and it is so rewarding to be able to have good Trek on again consistently. And Lower Decks really hit it out of the park with consistently being a giant homage to everything that's come before. Literally every Trek is referenced or honored in some fashion in Lower Decks. And let's get into Crisis Point, which is a love letter to every Trek movie. ...of everything, which really shows a fair amount of creativity from the writers. And visually, as they're on the holodeck, seeing the scenes, it looks like film. I, I worked at a movie theater as my first job and I learned how to splice movies together uh, to be a projectionist. And you see the little line going across the screen and it's just like, wow, that's amazing attention to detail in a 1980s, 90s style storytelling for what a movie looks like. And uh, chef's kiss for this. Well, well let's, let's talk about uh, the great issues with this because we've each put some outline points together. So I'll take point for crisis point. And Steve, why don't you take point for uh, no small parts so that way we kind of- Sure. Uh, divvy it up. Sounds but good. We, we, we do have you know the proud tradition of track of people going to a planet and seeing something really wrong. And in this we have the race of rats that are sentient human-sized rats eating a species of lizard that's also sentient, that they just want to bask, but they know they're tasty, delicious. Mm -hmm. And 
the rats are eating them and and mariner goes in and does the morally right thing of we're gonna knock this crap off right now and mom's not happy about that and mom orders her daughter to go to therapy and then plays peacemaker with like if we give you food replicators will you stop eating these guys and she she's just so like exacerbated with discussion of like we stop eating them like because i don't want to have to deal with a report saying like yeah there's now a war where there wasn't one yesterday caused by my kid mm. so although i think that scene as funny as it was serves to highlight why mariner may not have necessarily the correct approach because all they re all the rat people really wanted was well can can the replicators make nutritional paste <laughs> it turns out the bar for replacing the lizards as food was quite low. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't like a religious reason, like some societal racism. It was... They happen to be nutritionally complete. Can you offer an alternative? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Can we get some neutral bars or something here? You know? Exactly. Yeah. We, we got this thing figured out. We got faster than light travel. Yes. So... Let's talk about being ordered to see a counselor. And I, Nari, I, I think this might be one of your sweet spots to talk about 5150s and, and whether or not the captain can order you know, someone to go get therapy. Your thoughts. Sorry, is this UCMJ? <laughs> 5150 is California state code, actually. Ah, uh, okay. It's um. the having somebody who's a um, an involved yeah involved yeah. committed san diego PD oh. and other law enforcement usually use 5150 they can yes. Yes. involuntarily commit someone is it 48 hours something like that to take them off yeah. uh, 72 and for the record because we do need to mention this it was the first van halen album with sammy hagar <laughs> wow that's because and, and a moment to appreciate Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, unfortunately. Rest in peace. Yeah. yeah I, just, I saw them. Mm. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so to get into 5150, I just checked and it's 72 hours. But so basically, there's a couple points to go over here. The first is that in order to invoke 5150, a person has to be um, a danger to others, himself or herself, or gravely uh, disabled, a peace officer, professional person in charge uh, may go ahead and, as defined by the regulation, um, basically take the person into custody for a maximum of 72 hours. Now, there's a couple things. So the first is the invocation uh, requirement. So that's, you know, a pretty, pretty strong burden, I think, to me. It's not just that this person is maybe going to commit a crime. It's that they have to actually be posing some kind of threat. Um, I'm not sure. I mean... She kind of was about to start a war. Maybe that qualifies. <laughs> that could pose a serious uh, risk of harm to others. Um, but the other part here that I, I think is kind of fun to talk about is the part where it's only 72 hours. Because this would otherwise be a pretty serious loss of liberty, right? We're talking about taking someone into custody. I mean, it says for evaluation and mental assessment, that kind of thing. But you're giving up all of your liberty for 72 hours. You are a ward of the state for that period of time. Um, and normally we require 
huge amounts of process, right? That's a criminal penalty. You can never go to jail for a civil crime, <laughs> or sorry, for a civil offense. We're talking a criminal penalty, which is similar to going to jail. Um, and ordinarily, we require the highest amount of process for that, including you have to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, etc. Um, and in this case, we don't have that, but it's in part because it's temporary. So rather than have this large amount of process that you have to go through before you can deprive someone of their liberty, we have this one limited exception, but it has a very narrow window of time under which they can do it. So you wouldn't be able to do this, for example, to hold someone for months uh, without charge because you just say you think that they're dangerous. <laughs> that wouldn't fly. Um, and I think that's just one of the most important things to emphasize. I think we actually talked a little bit, a lot about that when it came to like quarantines and things like that. It matters a lot how long um, it, the kind of remedy or government action is. And in this case, 72 hours is, you know, three days, but it's, it's not the worst. And, and I, I think you're, you know, you're absolutely correct, um, Nari, you know, the way the courts and legislatures have navigated the constitutional issues here is number one, you know, that the length of time is not too long, but also it's, um, it's sort of a variation on exigent circumstances. You know, it's usually someone waving a gun or a knife threatening to kill people. Like, okay, what do we do? You know, if they don't actually kill someone, you know, is there a fallback, something else we can do? And usually 5150 is um, the fallback that, okay, let's at least get this person off the streets for up to three days and see if we can figure things out and improve the situation. So it's effectively calling a timeout, you know, from a, from a law enforcement perspective. It is a short-term solution. You know, we're not talking about fixing the problem forever with this. You know, we, one has to find another solution. So it's interesting. I mean, Mariner, it's not like she was running around waving a phaser or threatening to kill people. Uh, this is sort of different. Her heart, I think we could all agree, is in the right place. She wants to help. But is she doing the right thing? Is she kind of looking at the short picture instead of the big picture? You know, Star Trek teaches that lesson and history teaches that lesson. You know, with the best of intentions, we can do something that we think is right, but it could lead to all these unintended consequences. And I think that's one of the big reasons behind the Prime Directive. And it's important to, to remember she was ordered to therapy, which is not like a 5150 hole. It's like you have to go to anger management training. So this is, I think, could be par with like a like sexual harassment training, a sensitivity training of and as part of your job we've noticed that you get angry easily and instead of yelling at people you overthrew a government and <laughs> started a war and then you yelled at your mom like all of that you know could she she was expecting to go to the brig and instead no you got to go see the psychiatrist and that's why I do think it's a little different than a 5150 because she's not restrained. If she'd been thrown in the brig, I think, and had to do therapy, I think we'd be closer to a 5150 scenario. But I think we're in something different where you uh, are awarded to therapy, which then raises the holodeck. And we've, we've had lots of fun discussing the holodeck here. But before we, leave that, before we leave that, I think it is worthy to point out that Mariner would actually prefer to be thrown in the brig. Yes, so her favorite place. His, her, you know, Captain Freeman is intentionally trying to not give her what she wants and go to therapy. So to Mariner, and she is not 
the reasonable person here. Most people, I think, would prefer not to be thrown in the brig. But Mariners think, oh, the brig, bring it on. Wait, therapy? Oh, my God, therapy? You know, no, anything but therapy. So, you know, this is, um, in that sense, it kind of has the same effect. It's really what she does not want. And she, she does make reference to, it's the 80s because of the time. <laughs> and I just, again, being the Gen X kid at heart, I just giggled. The 2380s, uh, right, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just so well done. Now, Nari, you're, you love rocking out over the holodeck. Steve, you do too. I, so. I, <laughs> so we find out that Boimler access personal logs to make a perfect representation of the crew. And my question to you is, my nerd love for the Stored Communication Act from, from 1986. Did he violate that Stored Communication Act? And Steve, you're the AUSA. Do you wanna, <laughs> do you wanna wade into the complexities of the thing Congress hasn't touched since the Reagan administration? Oof. Yeah, there is some, um, I mean, it sort of depends on how deeply we want to dive here. Um, you know, not enough for a nosebleed because there's yeah. so much mental gymnastics with the uh, SCA when it comes to e-discovery, which I is mean, how I'm familiar with it. Right. You know, we're. I mean, we're not only talking about that, but we're also. I mean, it, it strikes me that um, there are a lot of similarities to the Patriot Act and just monitoring people's communications, even if they are to themselves in a sense, which, you know, personal logs are, or their communications to their families or whatnot. Um, you know, the Patriot Act, of course, enacted post 9-11 to give law enforcement wider ability to monitor communications, uh, to watch out for terrorist threats. Um, at least that is the point of it. You know, it has come under criticism um, because, you know, their critics say that there's a lack of judicial oversight because even when you typically get warrants, you know, for intrusions upon constitutional rights, uh, they have to be signed off by a judicial officer. So there's oversight, you know, that, at least that's the idea. Whereas with the Patriot Act, um, the criticism at least is that the tribunal that's overseeing it is more secret. It's not out in the open like an Article Three court. Um, I can keep going down this rabbit hole, but that, that's really kind of what jumped out at me when I first saw this, I thought, whoa, okay, Mariner, you know, what, what are you, what are you doing here? Um, I think there are some serious concerns with what she did. Um, absolutely. But I, I actually, I, I mean, I see the Patriot Act discussion with, you know, a secret court and all the due process issues there, but I, you know, the Stored Communication Act has come up in the e-discovery context where a party will send a third party request under rule 45 if it's federal and whatever the state court equivalents are saying hey just give us all the email for person x in this lawsuit and courts uniformly have said no 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 that's not how the rules work there and there uh there have been a ton of decisions dealing with the the sca which is it takes a lot of mental gymnastics to talk about uh if it's stored or, or or the form that it is in and again it gets radically complicated if you're dealing with a remote computing service or electronic communication service 
you just can't go out and access somebody else's data. Like everyone has cloud email of some kind, whether it's Google or, or, or uh, Yahoo, you know, most of it is or, or Google or Gmail business suite. You just don't go hit a Google or Facebook directly saying like, hey, we want all this person's you know messages that go back and forth. And, and because that's content that's stored in electronic medium and you just can't do that. Boimler violated people's privacy rights and rights under the SCA by accessing their logs. And I, I really do think he would have a problem because of, you know, he, he used their information <laughs> to create replica, replicas of themselves. Which, no, which then including uh, medical information. Um, you know, he didn't necessarily query the computer specifically uh, about this, but we do learn uh, of a of a of one of the captain's allergies. <laughs> Ooh, that's a that's a good point. We're violating HIPAA. We're violating you know financial wow. security. Probably. I mean, there's all sorts of sensitive information that's being thrown around here. Good call. Uh, really good catch. So let's, let's talk about using a crew members like us in a holodeck program that apparently is for personal use, as opposed to he's writing his greatest hollow novel about his shipmates. This is so he can learn to brown nose better. Yeah, so fun thing, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sorry, I am very critical of this, as you will shortly see. But in essence, um, there's something called the right of publicity, uh, which um, had a very limited extent when it existed in common law. So it's we mostly look to state statute to, to, to find it. Um, in California, that's California Civil Code Section 3344. Um, and if I can just summarize, um, if you knowingly use another person's, you know, likeness, signature, that kind of stuff, but mostly right now we're focusing on likeness, um, in any manner, right, it also lists, or in products, merchandise, etc., but in any manner, <laughs> um, or for purposes of advertising, uh, etc., without such person's prior consent. Um, oh, sorry. It's not. All, it's it's yeah. On or in products, merchandise, or goods, or for purposes of advertising or selling or soliciting purchases of etc. 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 Without such person's consent, um, you're you're liable not only for compensatory damages, which would be any injuries incurred by the person whose likeness you were using, but there's also a statutory damage, and it's not a lot. It's uh seven hundred and fifty seven hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> But it's a statutory damage, and that is a little important to me um, to note because what that means is that even in a case where there is no compensatory damages, right? There was no um, actual injury caused by your use of a person's likeness. You, they they would still be entitled to this minimum. <laughs> it's essentially uh, putting a quantity on a, a kind of dignitary harm. Um, punitive damages may also be awarded, so you could have again an essentially injuryless crime. <laughs> but which has a statutory damage and potentially a punitive damage. Now, um, in the state of California, uh, there is a, an affirmative defense to when someone brings a right of publicity suit against you under section 3344. And it's known as the transformative use. <laughs> so basically uh, this was, yeah, so this was um, uh, the California Supreme Court in an old case called Comedy Three Productions versus Gary Satterup. Um, and what basically happened is this guy made uh, like charcoal etchings of the Three Stooges and put it on t-shirts. 
<laughs> now, technically speaking, right, it's not, it, it, you know, it was his artwork in the sense that it was an etching, um, but it was just the three stooges, just their, their faces, their likenesses. So in this case, the California Supreme Court trying to balance the, um, you know, asserted First Amendment interest of this artist who wanted to make and distribute and sell, it should be noted, and sell this art, um, versus the right of publicity, um, as obviously asserted by uh, the, the commercial entity on behalf of the Three Stooges. Um, and the test is basically that, uh, number one, is the celebrity likeness just one of the raw materials that this work comes from or is made up of? Or is that basically the entire thing? <laughs> is that the sum and substance of the work? Uh, number two, is the work primarily the defendant's own expression? Or again, is it just an expression of the likeness itself? Um, this factor actually does have a little bit of what we would think of from trademark, um, which is sort of the consumer confusion or consumer motivation. Is is a purchaser of the work primarily motivated by the reproduction of the celebrity <laughs> or are they primarily motivated to buy it because of the expressive work um which elements predominate the work literal and narrative reflection of the celebrity or the defendant's creative elements in close cases you consider again if the economic value of the work is derived primarily from the fame of the person whose likeness is being used um and then lastly is the defendant's skill and talent talent manifestly subordinated to the overall goal of creating a conventional portrait of a celebrity. Um, now, that has since been developed over time in further cases, um, and that doesn't sound like the worst test. It has been applied in some very weird ways, though, such that, so contrasting, for example, um, in other similar realms of intellectual property rights like trademark, um, you don't really have a strong protection for things like parody. Um, so, for example, there was a case in which um, there was an advertisement, I think it was Samsung, um, who uh, did like a futuristic Wheel of Fortune with a robot, an android that vaguely resembled uh, the Vander White. I'm trying to remember what her name was. Sorry. The very famous woman who did Wheel of Fortune. Vanna White. Um, Vanna White. Thank you. Yes, I was very famous. <laughs> But, and it was recognizable that it was a Vanna White robot, but it was also a parody. It was supposed to be, you know, Star Trek, 23rd century android with vague uh, characteristics like Vanna White. Um, and that was found to have been a violation. Um, on the other hand, you had uh, uh, another one where a reporter who was not a very famous reporter, but whose tagline, uh, sorry, not, not reporter, singer, but whose tagline was ooh la la, was made into a video game character who was a reporter whose name was Ulala. <laughs> um, that was not found to violate the right of publicity under the transformative use test. And you kind of get a little all over the map. The main, the main issues with the right of publicity and the main reason why I think that it's highly problematic are a couple. The first is that there isn't a fair use exception like you have in uh, copyright, although at least in the California version of the statute, they do specify that it has to be for various commercial uses. So that's Boimler's first defense here, <laughs> is he was not planning to use this in any kind of advertisement, product, etc. Um, that's not true in every state statute, and it's not true of the, of the right of publicity as it originally was at common law. Second one is unlike copyright, it has no time limit. Um, so you can have people and their estates after they're dead continue to assert this right. And it can be highly problematic because the most 
uh, famous people who therefore have the most value associated with their celebrity are therefore also some of the most culturally relevant uh, likenesses. Um, can therefore have their estates continue to control the use of their likenesses to limit it to only positive depictions. And it can be used to essentially stifle criticism. <laughs> so for example, if some of the characters, you know, or the people depicted in Boimler's movie saw some of the ways that they were being depicted, even if he felt it was a valid and honest critique, <laughs> um, might be able to uh, force him to stop, even if he offered to pay them uh, the value that their likeness would be worth because they just don't like how it's being used. Um, and and again, in things like copyright, you've got you usually have uh, exceptions and protections for um, you know derivative work if you offer to pay someone a fair price and offer them attribution, um, and you're making your own work based off of that. You usually have the ability to keep doing that. Obviously, there'll still be fights. Okay, I know I can keep going. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. <laughs> the last thing I will just say is that unlike um trademark and copyright which are the other two sort of quintessential intellectual properties that butt heads with the first amendment very directly those ones are actually in especially copyright that's in the constitution <laughs> it was actually provided in the constitution so it's a little odd that the transformative uh sorry not transformative that the right of publicity which is not similarly located in the constitution would be less vulnerable to a first amendment defense than copyright which arguably also has its own constitutional carve out so your criticism in a nutshell, Nari, is that this right gives people too much power to control their likenesses and stifles creativity, speech, things like that, satire, all sorts of things. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> California got into this because in the late 90s, Brisk ran some claymation ads with celebrities who had passed away. Bruce Lee was one. And um, Fred Astaire. And uh, their uh, family members were a tad upset about that. Yeah. And I when I was interned at the state capitol between my first and second year of law school, one of the people who came around visiting uh, the assemblymen was the widow of Fred Astaire. And she was like not happy that, you know, that her husband's likeness was being used by Brisk and like without permission and, and just being used that way. So it's one thing if it's parody, it's one thing if, uh, you know, it's like being used as an example in a hypothetical, but it's quite something else if somebody builds an ad campaign and is profiting off somebody's likeness. So I will just throw in one complication here, which is, although I agree that it's better to limit this to commercial uses, that's not been a very useful distinction in most of sort of First Amendment law, because ultimately most people, when they make creative works, they're selling books, they're selling paintings. Yeah. Um, it's usually not just someone doing their thing for free and just posting it on the internet. Um, you know, maybe that's changing a little bit with the social media age and they're all, but they're still usually deriving some kind of revenue from it. Um, and so it's very difficult to draw a distinction between art and sort of just straight commerce um, because ultimately people try to distribute it and try to at least recover costs. You know, there are some um, pulling into, pulling us into the Star Trek world a little bit. This has been explored. This Yes, yes several sorry. times. Um, we saw it in Next Generation Galaxy's Child when Jordi LaForge creates Dr. Leah Brahms in a moment of crisis and she helps them get out of this crisis. Um, 
well, Galaxy Child was the second episode. There was an earlier one where the Enterprise is trapped, and Dr. Leah Brahms, um, you know, uh, works as a team with Jordy. She was one of the designers of the Enterprise. Uh, so there, it was done for good. There's no commercial purpose. It's you know an emergency, and she saved the crew. Uh, and then later in Voyager, we have the Doctor writing his hollow novel, where he includes you know very thin, thinly veiled representations of all the senior crew. Very unflattering too, and they're all angry, but they they try to give him a dose of his own medicine and have him you know kind of go through it himself. And then he realizes that he was a little insensitive. But I think all these people would have um, a cause of action, you know, against the the authors here, and maybe have a have an ability to stop the publication too. Photons be free. Wasn't that what it was called? Something like that. Yes. yes, but so I think this is the perfect example, though, because even though there's you know a bit of we have, I think, a healthy instinct um, to empathize with people who are upset at the way their likenesses are being used. That artistic work in the Star Trek canon went on to inspire other holograms to think seriously about their own individual liberty. Right. Um, and it was a really important work of art. So, what is the socially desirable result here? Right. That's you know we're kind of weighing law and social responsibility and there's um some heavy issues here not not an easy answer which is very star trekian i think <laughs> yes definitely so let's move on to the please do i could talk about this for an hour <laughs> so mariner hijacks boimler's program and puts down the basics for her movie quote end quote and the AI fills in the blanks after she puts in some of the basics. And the, the beginning is with the, the credits flying, looks very Superman 1978. There's, it's just, it, it's a love letter to sci-fi over decades. And one of the themes that we have is there are, there's somebody impersonating Starfleet and impersonating a, uh, Starfleet vessel that did the second contact uh, or first contact and and Starfleet going we don't have a ship with that name which is the the reason for the Cerritos to go investigate. Steve what's your thoughts on impersonating Starfleet or impersonating a starship? So it, it's very interesting because there, there are different ways to cut this and different analogies to draw. I mean, some of the analogies that jump out are impersonating a law enforcement officer, impersonating a government official. Um, here, we are, we are we have someone impersonating either a, a starship and its crew. So they could be in a lot of trouble, certainly with Starfleet. But with anyone else, you know, the other, the other people wouldn't care. Um, you know, it, it would depend on who catches them. You know, like they would be in trouble in the Federation, but in the Klingon Empire, I doubt that the Klingons would care if someone was impersonating Starfleet. Well, it's still fraud, so it depends what they're doing. It's still an, uh, an intentional misrepresentation, even if the Klingons might not care if it's like, well, they were impersonating Starfleet. It's like, well, what did they do? What did they promise? What, what actions were done? Because there's still a fraud being perpetrated. There is, but I think the practical reality is that it depends on who is harmed and who catches uh -huh. the fraudster. Um, you know, again, if it, if it's Starfleet, I think yeah, they can they have a strong right. I mean, this kind of echoes the earlier discussion that Nari was going into. 
Starfleet has a strong interest in ensuring that their name and their reputation is not being smeared by people running around dressing up as them and saying, oh, on behalf of Starfleet, we want you to give us half your territory or something like that. Um, you know, so there, there's a huge problem, obviously, if Starfleet gets a hold of them. And, you know, that's, that, that's something we, we also saw explored in another episode, Voyager, uh, Live Fast and Prosper, where a couple impersonating Janeway and Tuvok, you know, and it's, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's odd that often the Delta Quadrant, where Starfleet is not really a presence, um, people just decide to impersonate them. And actually, they get some benefit from that. So, you know, is this similar to someone kind of showing up or finding um, a police officer's badge and just, you know, waving it out and saying, hey, you know, law enforcement here, um, I want you to give me some free donuts or something like that, you know? Um, you know, it, 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 that there is definitely a problem here, but they would ha probably have to be caught by Starfleet or caught by someone else and brought to Starfleet. Someone could say, look, this person was ripping us off. They were saying they were one of yours. Are they? No? Okay, well, you know, don't you want to... Here, here they are. Why don't you deal with them? Um, so the bottom line answer is yes, there is definitely a problem with that. The, but the practical answer in a huge galaxy, it, it just depends. Will they get caught and by whom? So let's get to the next part of the film where we have the attack on the Cerritos. You don't want to talk about the several minute long approach to the Cerritos? Oh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> we did have, again, the beautiful homage to Star Trek The Motion Picture. So Star Trek The Motion Picture had one of the largest budgets to make a Star Trek movie. So when you go 11 years without Star Trek, you got a lot of pent up nerd energy there. So they went big with Scotty and Kirk doing the visual tour of the Enterprise with this sweeping music playing. From every possible angle. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was from the port side. As we <laughs> talked about last week, they didn't fully circle the ship, but they go around and neither of them talk the entire time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and like, I'm not gonna lie, I enjoy watching that scene now a lot. You just like, it, it's, it's like ship porn. Like you just sit back, it's like, yeah, look at the lines on that spaceship. Mm. And the, that's clearly the what they lady did. right there. Yes, <laughs> handsome woman. And uh, uh, they did the homage to that when in space dock and with the entire bridge crew on a shuttlecraft and none of them speaking. You see the chief engineer crying as he's looking at the ship. <laughs> and Jack's like putting his hand on his shoulder. And he's just like, okay, I'm like, if you like boats or airplanes or cars, you totally get that. Like you totally, it's like you see a 67 Mustang all sweet and cherry. It's like, yeah, hello. It's just. I just want to point out as someone who doesn't like boats, planes, airplanes, or cars, I still really get this. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, it's like it's just like I I have the strange desire to go to the Air and Space Museum. I don't know why. It's just I, I want to go see the the space shuttle that's there and the SR seventy one. Like that's a normal reaction, and and something very, you know, it's like it speaks to your inner engineer. And they do that beautiful homage. 
And that, that footage from the motion picture was reused in The Wrath of Khan for Enterprise clearing moorings because they had the budget cut. Uh, and, and none were the wiser because no one cares because it's that damn beautiful. And so they, again, I appreciate the nice space dock view that lets every nerd that's ever loved the Enterprise design just stare at her longingly because that's how we roll. And I was five, and I think that's when I fell in love with the ship. So, Steve, you with me there? <laughs> I absolutely am. <laughs> I love the ship, and then I'm holding one of, I think, five or six different versions of the Enterprise, the refit, the movie Enterprise. By the way, Josh, I don't know if you ever saw it. They had it at WonderCon and Comic-Con, I think, a few times. QMX made a, I think it was maybe six feet long, the Enterprise from the movie. I saw it, and I was in love, and I wanted to take that home right then and there. But um, budgetary <laughs> and space issues would not cooperate with me, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, uh, you gotta explain it to your wife. Uh, I just yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, interesting point about the design though. The QMX people were telling me that the thing about the movie Enterprise is that it looks good from every angle. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at say the Enterprise B or D, there are certain angles that are definitely more flattering just because of the geometry. And then you know, if you talk to if you hear interviews with Andy Probert, who's one of the main designers of the ship. He pointed out that for the Enterprise D, he really thinks that organic shapes are very interesting. So he wanted the Enterprise D to look more organic, you know, like a large sort of clamshell or, you know, um, sea, you know, creatures. Uh, so he took a lot of inspiration from, from organisms. Um, I'll just conclude by uh, also including a, um, a different perspective. And that is that, you know, when I saw this, uh, in the episode, I was laughing because to me, it was a callback to Star Trek three because it takes place inside space dock, you know, inside Terra main space dock. And then my little ones are staring at it. And my older one just gets up and goes, dad, this is so weird. This is like circling a parking lot for hours before deciding upon what space you want to park in. And I just thought, okay, I think the moment was lost upon him. <laughs> Give him time. Uh, you know, at did either of you go to the uh, Sheraton in Las Vegas where they had the Star Trek experience, where you could go to Quark's Bar and they had the giant models of the ships hanging There's from the ceiling? There's a Quark's Bar I can go to. There was in the nineties. Oh. Early two thousands. You yeah. might not have been old enough, but um, it was beautiful. You could we. we when you look at what Galaxy Edge is today for Star Wars fans, Quark's Bar was like that for Star Trek fans and being able to go on the ship. And they had, you know, the 4D experience that you could go on fighting the Borg or uh, trying to save Picard. And, you know, like, so the full recreation of the Enterprise D bridge, people would get married on it. Like wow. it was... Yeah. Uh, it was nerd heaven cool. for Star Trek. It was awesome. I, I only saw a little... Did, did you go through the whole thing, Josh? I, I only saw it a little bit, like, in passing, unfortunately. I did. So it was... Um, 
2005, I just finished working on a big case as a contract attorney. And my brother had been in a stage production of Spock's brain playing Spock. And it was hysterical. And they got to go to the Star Trek convention and, and talk about it. And so I went to go support, support my brother. And while there, I did go through the Star Trek experience because like I wouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like, I've, it's like, okay, we can get Klingon blood wine, serve it. You know? So it was, it was very fun. It, it was very fun. If we're talking about Starship models, um, just before we leave the topic, are you guys familiar with the, the famous Christie's auction where they sold off the props um, and the movie and TV used actual replicas. Um, so the Deep Space Nine, here, here's just three, three data points. Deep Space Nine space station that was used for the filming. Um, guess how much it went for? 300,000. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Ah, ah, sorry, Nari, sorry. Price is right, yeah. <laughs> I, should, I should let you guess. Um, Klingon Bird of Prey, first seen in Star Trek Three. And then in several other movies, how much do you think? 000. Good guess, Josh. I give you and your brave crew two hundred and fifty thousand. Josh is very close, two hundred sixty thousand. Wow! <laughs> and now one of the grails, the original Enterprise D. Guess how much that went for? Oh, five hundred thousand. Four twenty-five. 500,000. Wow, very good job. <laughs> I mean, these are rough but numbers, but yes. Yeah, okay, on for seven years. People loved it dearly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just totally makes sense. I would love so, to meet the collector who bought these items. That, that's impressive. Having the space to hang that, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, Grant, if you can throw down that kind of cash, you clearly have the space. Yeah. But imagine inviting people into your living room and it's like, this is the Enterprise D room and you have chairs around it and you can just stare at it and enjoy Earl Grey tea or <laughs> blood wine or gawk, whatever. It sounds so, like a perfect day to me. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with it. But... um <laughs> Let, let's get back to the story. And, and again, being being the sailor at heart, we got a lot of privacy where piracy, where yes. we have uh, uh, Mariner acting out her rage as basically every Star Trek villain you can imagine. There's a little Krug. There's a little Khan. There's uh, definitely a little Kang. Uh Let's see now who maybe um, no no but again there's there's a lot of villains that that she plays up and really leans into uh, and and you know commits an act of piracy so you might wonder what is piracy and that's from the law of nations whoever on high seas commits the crime of piracy is defined and is afterwards brought in to or found in the United States shall be in prison for life. And, you know, there, there were actually a few cases that I saw that had all these wonderful charges for people, like, there were pirates, I think, from Somali, but I, Somalia, yeah, about 100%. But they went out, going out to plunder 
and they inadvertently attacked a U.S. destroyer, which was not in a good mood after being fired upon, and they returned fire and caught the guys. And so the charges that, that were leveled against these pirates was uh, attack to plunder a vessel, acts of violence against persons on a vessel, oh, it goes on, uh, assault with dangerous weapons in a special maritime jurisdiction, assault with a dangerous weapon on federal officers and employees, and conspiracy involving a firearm and a crime of violence, using, carrying, or possessing a firearm, carrying an explosive uh, during the commission of a felony, conspiracy. Basically, if you take on the United States Navy or even the United States Coast Guard and they let you live, you, you're going to have a really hell of a time with the U.S. attorney that's going to prosecute you. Fun wrinkle here. <laughs> so yes. um, piracy is uh, contrasts, for example, with you know, two nations at war and one attacks the other vessel, right? And we've talked about this extensively in different podcasts, but law of war gets into this whole other thing where we don't find, for example, the regular crimes don't apply. We don't find every soldier who kills another soldier to be guilty of murder. Um, but this can have some pretty kind of, in my opinion, comical results when, for example, in past times, news of the end of a war would take a long time <laughs> to filter out, especially to people at sea. So you had Confederates, like two years after the war had ended, take a ship and then realize, oh crap, the war is over, we're pirates now. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, that's just a kind of interesting wrinkle here. <laughs> And told of the uh, the last uh, in the, the book Last Flag Down about the CSS uh, Shenandoah that uh, made that tactical error, and uh, they were taking on uh, U.S. Uh, whaling ships, and then, then realized, oh no, oh no, oh we're so screwed, and yeah, so like they dumped the cannons overboard and made a run for England, uh, and. You know, yeah, I think they would have a decent defense. I mean, like, hey, how are they supposed to know? Communications spotty at best. Um, one of the most dramatic examples of that, it's not a maritime example exactly, but at the end of World War II, after Japan surrendered, there was a famous case of the Japanese soldier who was stationed on an island and never got news of this. And when people told him about it, he refused to believe it. He was such a diehard. Um, they had to get his old commanding officer, who of, of course had long retired and all this, to go and actually talk the guy, talk to the guy, talk him down, and finally that sort of ended the war. Uh, he was sort of the last one. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There, there, there were stories of Japanese soldiers hanging out in the Philippines for forty years, refusing to believe that they lost. Yeah, it's like. You sacrificed your life for nothing, dude. You were married. Like, it's just, dude. Ouch. Yeah, I just. Yeah. If I remember yeah. one of those articles, like one of the guys who spent 40, 50 years hiding out in the jungle was treated somewhat well when it's like, they're like, everyone just feel, felt bad, I guess. Like, oh, buddy. Yeah, that's my reaction. <laughs> <laughs> you could have had a life. Oh, dude. Um, and maybe one day we'll talk about Atragon, the uh, Ashira Honda sci-fi movie that's about 
a submarine crew that spends 20 years building a super secret submarine for Imperial Japan, despite the fact the war is over. And they have a really hard time accepting, what do you mean we outlawed war in our constitution? Screw you. So yeah, yeah it's, uh, yeah, they, they made a movie. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So let's, so with, with, the fights that happen. So we have Mariner as Vindicta, just blowing up her shipmates left and right. You know, the guy who did the one-man show, you know, uses a severed Borg head as an explosive device. And they, they would they'd be able to prosecute her if she was really a pirate doing that sort of thing. And uh, her you know, shipmate Tendi might have some uh, like hostile work environment claims because there were things said based upon race and national origin about Orions being pirates. And and Tendi saying, Orions haven't done that. Some Orions haven't done that for more than five years. Which, yeah, that was great. Which is adorable. So adorable. But uh, she might have some uh, issues there. But we, we see the Cerritos crash, which is a mix of Generations and Star Trek Beyond, which, again, is a movie I hate. And <laughs> Find a happy place, Josh. <laughs> happy place. Shh, it's okay. Hold the puppy. And we, we see uh, Mariner fight herself as Vindictive versus Mariner. And you know, Nari, do you want to – or actually – which one of you entered notes so that way you can speak about the section you put in? Is that you, Steve? If I could jump in for a little bit, I'm yeah. happy to hand it off to Nara here. Yeah. But you know, the I was horrified watching the scene where Mariner not only blows away her crewmates, but takes such perverse pleasure in blasting her crewmates into oblivion. And I'm thinking, oh my God, can you imagine if on a holodeck, as does happen in other episodes, one of these people were real? Mariner clearly has the intent to kill these people. And what if uh, one of these people kind of walks in like, oh, what are you guys doing here? This looks like a fun simulator. Ah, and gets killed. That's it. Sorry, game so, for, for Mariner, you know? But the safety, the safeties would have to be off, which of course never happens on a hollow deck. <laughs> Except for twice in this series in 10 episodes, you know? But yes. Um, but no, I mean, I think there's also, even if the safeties were on, there's still potential problems here with like intentional infliction of emotional distress, right? Somebody doesn't realize they've stepped onto the holodeck and they see Vindicta murdering their 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 best friend or right. something like that. That might be IIED. Um, yeah, no, that that's a really interesting wrinkle. That I think that's uh, that's very just dangerous. Um, you know, there's a lot of bad things that can come of that. Now, on the flip side there's a tremendous therapeutic benefit to being able to release rage and aggression in a controlled environment. We see that with Worf and his Klingon exercises that are just so intense and violent, far beyond what most humans could endure. Um, so, you know, arguing the other side, the holodeck is the perfect place you know, for her to do this because no one will get hurt. She gets to unleash that rage. It can be very therapeutic and very just... Um, healing and she confronts herself 
we get echoes of Superman three here, you know, the good and the bad Mariner kind of fighting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure everyone was thinking Superman three, right? of course. Um, but Mariner fights herself and who wins? Mariner wins no matter what, right? So. Well, no, Mariner yeah. won as opposed to Vendicta. So like that's the, the, the good version triumphed over her, which highlights good wins. Although they both uh, die, right? Like it's a self-destruct, they both die. Self-sacrificial win. Right, right. <laughs> While we, while I've been distracting you, the entire team has beamed away. Yeah. <laughs> it's just again sacrifice play, which is a Star Trek hallmark of all throwdown. And again, we we have you know, despite Mariner being a brat so frequently, you know, we have the great line of "Get away from my mother, you bitch." Which and where, where does that come from, Josh? Very much aliens. Yeah. Very much aliens. Thank you. And and also done to great degree in Paul with Sigourney Weaver taking a punch. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, but again, it's you highlight the fact that Mariner does love her mom, and deep down, so like the core version of Mariner that's in the holodeck, you know, goes the full measure to save ship and family. So that's it was it was. It was fun. It was a good fight, too. Yes. Uh, and I want to agree with you, Steve. I have been actually very sympathetic to people's use of the holodeck, even when, you know, recreating members of their own crew since that first episode in Next Generations where uh, Broccoli <laughs> is recreating <laughs> the entire bridge crew. Yeah. Yes. In, uh, in very questionable ways. Oh, yeah. Um, now... <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, this is, I, I was really hard on the right of publicity before, but I do want to emphasize that there are other possible tests that we could use to look at to balance those interests. Um, one would be, you know, if you actually weren't distributing it. So in this case, that's literally just for personal therapy. Um, and the second one would be how much of a public figure is this person and are you using them in the sense in which they've been a public figure, right? So if all you're doing is, you know, creating this bridge crew uh, doing what they do as a bridge crew and then critiquing it or parodying it, that might be fair. But if instead what you're doing is creating a holographic version of Kira from Deep Space Nine for uh, salacious purposes and trying to sell that, uh, that might be off the table. Um, so there are interesting tests we could come up with that seem to balance what I think most people have as instinctual uh, protective protective instincts to protect people's interests involved here. Um, I fully support using the holodeck for therapy. And in fact, I want to point out one other use, which was Voyager um, uh, during the episode in which there was a serial killer, a sociopath uh, in, in the crew. Um, and uh, Tuvok mind melded with him to try to help him control his urges. Tuvok was then unable to control the urges and had to go to the holodeck to kill a holographic version of Neelix. Because doesn't everyone kind of want to do that anyway? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need some holodeck therapy I actually, here. I love Neelix as an actor. I really do. We need some holodeck <laughs> therapy. I'm sure he was a good cook. Um, <laughs> he, he didn't have the best ingredients with which to work, but you know. He, he did okay. He did. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about any big lessons from this. So we have a love letter to all the movies, which I adored immensely. We 
have Mariner realize that my mom's pretty okay. I was a little wound up. Boimler needs to take a chill pill. And anything else that struck you from Crisis Point? Uh, just that the ultimate lesson was that uh, Mariner was her own worst enemy. Ooh. And which, which I think it's good uh, have, Go ahead. Sorry, Josh. It's good to have Da Vinci on watch, too. Oh, yeah. But my little guys love that. Um, they thought it was very apropos that Da Vinci is in the beginning, and then we get Mariner or you know, Vindicta waking up, and Da Vinci blows her away like, Mope, you're gone. You know, we're squashing this. Um, that was that was interesting, but I, I think that overall theme and the whole season's been building up to that. Mariner is just flouting the rules and sort of hates she's too cool for school all the time. Um, and the Da Vinci's a Voyager callback, we all got yeah. that, right. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Although I think he appeared on Next Gen at least once or twice, too. Um, trying to remember. He wasn't in that poker game with Data, though, which did include um, Sir Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, and, of course, Stephen Hawking. We're going, don't mean to go too far from that rabbit Sorry. hole. Yes, yes. But I loved um, you know, some of the dialogue we have. You've been a jerk since I was eight. Why do you have to be so hard on me? Um, and then... Yeah, I may hate protocol, but I don't hate this ship. The captain's my mom. She's watching out for me in the only way she knows how. So that's like the enlightened mariner telling Vindicta. And, you know, it hits home. You know, you're hearing it from yourself. Uh, and what a great theme. You know, I think one of the overall themes we've discussed in all of our episodes has been, should we should a person be constantly looking for the next big thing or should they be happy where they are? Uh and this is a variation on that theme that, you know, the answer is ourselves and Mariner, you know, that piece she needs is within herself. She should be happy where she is because she is happy there. She, she has a lot that she loves. She just didn't realize it. That's my takeaway. Totally. Totally agree. Yes. Closing thoughts. Uh, let's, let's warp on over to no small parts. So Steve, why don't you take the con on this one, which starts out with a classic throwback to a TOS episode with a still from the uh, original animated series, the TAS ep episode as well. So it's it's just wonderful. So we're here at the conclusion of the season one journey of Lower Decks, episode 10. Uh, and it has been quite a ride, and we are—we have a callback immediately to the original series episode, The Return of the Archons. Uh, Josh, I'm sure you got this. Um, I did, although it's been a while since I've seen it. I don't know if you—have you seen that episode, Mari? I have, oh. um, and I absolutely loved that there was even a sticker on Landrew that said, Do not open <laughs> <laughs> They're putting all the caution tape everywhere, you know? Um but part of the um, the themes of this episode, too, is that in Star Trek, um, and it's almost like you get with a case or a trial or whatnot, Star Trek, you get a one episode, you know, 60 minutes or whatever, 50 some odd minutes with commercial breaks, uh, a, a window, sort of like a one episode window into a planet's um, life, you know, society's life. And the crew tries to fix it. And they have this one episode, and then it's over and done with, and they're gone. 
Uh, but what happens afterwards? You know, things appear to be good when you leave, but are they really? And there's so many original series episodes where this happens. Uh, a piece of the action, you know, where they find the planet that is that built a society around a book on the 1920s Chicago mobs, you know? Uh, how's that society doing? Like, you know, uh, hundreds of years later, we, we don't know. But we learn pretty quickly that uh, people, we don't know how long it took, but at least a generation or so later, they decide to start following Landrew again. So here's the Cerritos saying, wait, you know, we really meant it when Kirk told you, don't follow this guy. He's just dangerous. Um, and we also learned that the, the original TOS stands for those old scientists, apparently, and the, the 2260s, as they say. Um, any other thoughts here on the, on the callback to the return of the Archons? It was nicely done. And it highlights that Starfleet has a policy of interference sometimes which is not really consistent. And Freeman talks about the need to check up more frequently. Right, the prime directive can be pretty rigid. Um, and maybe this is a law that needs to be a little more flexible. We, we just don't know. But uh, Star Trek's or Starfleet's foreign policy, you know, dictated by the prime directive has had some some negative results. I think most would have to agree with that. So quickly, then we get the secret is revealed. Mariner is revealed to be Captain Freeman's daughter. Boimler lords this over her. Mariner freaks out. She's angry, says, don't tell anyone. Boimler starts teasing her, singing a song, gets beamed up to the bridge, and uh, does a little dance in front of everyone until he freaks out and realizes that the captain is right there. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, is there any... Is he in any trouble here in subordination, anything like that? Conduct unbecoming. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> if we're going to defend Boimler for a moment, he didn't intend to disrespect the captain, right? He's just making fun of his friend who is his equal in rank. Um, so maybe there shouldn't be consequences. However, his conversation, although not intentionally, was overheard by the entire bridge and as they say in Star Trek, the only thing that travels faster than warp speed is the rumor mill. So you know that's going to get around the ship pretty quickly, and it does. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, uh, Boimler could be in some trouble. Uh, the issue, of course, at the heart of this is nepotism. You know, now that it is revealed that Mariner is Freeman's daughter, are people going to treat her differently? And we learn quickly they do. So this creates a lot of problems, you know. And this is why we have some sort of anti-nepotism rules. Um, anyone want to talk about this? Yeah, 5 USC 3110. <laughs> um, prohibition on the employment of relatives. A public official may not appoint, employ, promote, advance, or advocate for appointment, employment, promotion or advancement um, uh, uh, in or to, and this is kind of, you know, maybe this is where we go off the rails to a civilian position in the agency in which uh, he or she is servicing and exercises jurisdiction. Um, now, I wasn't able to quickly find the corollary in the military, and I presume that's because there are situations in the military where you will have a relative serving under another relative. I would presume, though, that if nothing else, that, you know, if someone were actually accused of, of you know, unduly favoring a relative in the military would probably fall into one of the catch-all provisions in the UCMJ. 
But in general, we do have laws against this, at least for public employment. And the problems are in full display. You know, in this episode, uh, Mariner is immediately treated differently. Someone asks her to deliver a request to her mom, this conspiracy theorist who doesn't believe that Wolf 359 ever actually happened, by the way. But he, he, he delivers a request. Can you take this to your mom? That was just the most amazing Star Trek parallel for like a 9-11 conspiracy. Like that was just beautiful. <laughs> Changelings aren't real. The Minion War didn't happen. Didn't happen, right? Yeah. The moon landing didn't happen, you know, and you know, nine eleven. You know, it, it, Wolf three five nine. You know, the Borg don't exist apparently, or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, another crewman, a crew member, asks, you know, takes a selfie with Mariner. The doctor asks for permission to have a relationship, and Boiler asks her for a letter of recommendation. So she clearly is being treated differently. Now, on the um, on the nepotism angle, um, uh, and I'll hand it over to you, Josh, if you if you want to comment on this. But you know, I've seen this play out in various government agencies, and you know, it, it's a difficult issue because, on the one hand, you know, certainly we want to prevent people from getting positions that they do not otherwise deserve. I mean, I, I think that that is sort of at the heart of it. However, what happens if one a su- you know a supervisor does have a relative who happens to be terrific and would be perfect for the job and a great fit. Now are they prevented from hiring that person through the nepotism rules of the anti-nepotism rules? And you know that the the law tries to kind of balance that. The way in which you know I've heard at least it proposed to kind of fix that is that well you know we want as many good people as we can get in any organization. So you know, we, can we have married couples working together in the same office or other relatives? And the answer typically is, well, yeah, it does kind of depend, but yes, if it's large enough and if they can maybe be in different chain of commands, chains of command, like they can't be directly in the same chain of command because that would be very problematic. You know, one cannot supervise one's son or brother or, you know, wife. Um, I imagine that would create some marital issues at home. Uh, so, you know, but if it's a level remove, sort of, you know, if, if it's a different chain of command, maybe it's a little more doable. At least that's how it's been proposed to be handled, you know, in some, uh, some situations, but, uh, and I, I believe there was an episode of Next Generations where Picard um, began a romantic relationship with a member of the crew, thought that he would be able to treat um, the person still neutrally and ended up not being able to do so. What I, I'm thinking Lessons, right episode, yes, but- where Picard is playing his flute, yes. which also was a very valuable item that was sold at auction in that at Christie's auction from the Inner Light. Um, but he plays it with tremendous passion. He meets a new crew member uh has a relationship with her and wonders if it will cause problems and it does like when she makes a request of Riker for resources he doesn't feel comfortable turning her down because he knows of her relationship with the captain and then the captain himself uh has difficulty placing her life in the you know in danger during an away mission and he knows he realizes that he cannot be objective which he needs to be you know as the CEO of the ship um you know it's a good example of how difficult it can be despite the best of intentions to serve with a loved one. Um, And I think it also serves to highlight how a rule which might seem to on its face be designed to discourage uh, relationships among crew members is also protective of what we see as a society as sort of the proper depth of those intimacies in the sense that we don't 
think it is good or reasonable that a person would would actually be able to treat um, a loved one neutrally when sending people on dangerous away missions. Um, I'm not sure that we want to live in a society where uh, captains in general are perfectly comfortable sending their wives or husbands or children uh, down to a pop, you know, 90% chance of death. Um, and so in order to avoid that, I think, you know, Starfleet kind of doesn't have, have this rule, but they probably should, uh, where you're not supposed to have that direct chain of command. That would mean that captains would have to find their romances not on their ships. Uh, but I think that's a relatively small sacrifice compared to the difficulties. Command is a lonely place. Yeah. Go ahead, Josh. There's a reason why it's called she. Uh, <laughs> there. Hey, if I were a captain, right. my ship would be right. <laughs> <laughs> That was the Greek and Russian navies do that. But anyway, that's not important right now. What is, is uh, there's an example of having a family member in a position of authority where it was all right, at least I think so in my opinion. And that's President Jack Kennedy nominated his brother Bobby to be attorney general. And Bobby Kennedy was, for the most part, an effective attorney general. Now, when it came to the Freedom Riders, uh, Attorney General Kennedy actually told the Freedom Riders, who you know, included John Lewis and other heroes who were willingly going to the South on a bus to get the crap beat out of them because civil rights matter. And he, he says something along the lines of, you're making the president look bad abroad, which is, again, not the best thing to say. Uh, but it was Bobby that helped avoid the world blowing up with the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. So, Mulligan. Uh, uh, so again, not always bad. You can have family members uh, in positions and, and that not be a problem. And I think you generally don't want people in the same command. And I think the military does a pretty good job avoiding that. Uh, I have friends in the military, like, you know, and <clears throat> Jackie outranks her husband, Chris, and uh, we're, we're in different commands because of that. So um, it, it worked out. I just, uh, just want to point out on the point where you're saying that it can work in certain circumstances. Um, we generally, though, don't design our rule systems for angels. We design them for, uh, we, we assume yeah. people will be devils and try to make sure the rules work even when they are being malicious. Um, so it yes. could work in some circumstances. I can certainly see it not working in others. <laughs> and since, I'm not, since I don't work for the government, I can say it's not working now. My First Amendment right. Now, I'll take the bullet for you guys there. Why don't we move on so that way uh, we're safe? So well, I won't touch that, but I will just to echo what Nari is saying. One could argue that the, the whole legal system, all the laws, too, are also uh, exist. They exist to sort of protect us from ourselves, if you will, or protect us from bad behavior. Um, so that's from a our, long theoretical. First devil is not from our better angels. <laughs> right. A long philosophical discussion. Um, so we get into a another sort of a theme that's been running throughout this episode and you know much of the season, uh, Starfleet protocol. How important is it, and how good is it uh, in the 24th century? We still get bad behavior from people, um, and you know one, one would think that if they follow the rules, that maybe they'll be okay. We get the USS Solvang, and we barely you know we hardly know them, barely get to know them. 
uh, before they get taken down by the pack lids. And they appear to follow Starfleet protocol. You know, they try to make contact with this gigantic ship that appears. They only defend themselves as a last resort. They try to warp out of there. And it turns out that their warp maneuver is their undoing. And apparently they lose all hands. I mean, this is a big deal. They, You know, we've lost a starship with a sizable crew. And when the Cerritos comes to investigate, again, they're thinking that nah, this is no big deal. And I think this is something that really separates um, Lower Decks. You know, some people may look at this and think, oh, it's an animated show. It's just going to be sort of ha-ha, funny, slapstick, nothing serious. But no, we get some really deep and dark themes. An entire starship is lost, all hands. I mean, that's a lot of people dead. Uh, and even though the Cerritos is sort of joking as they ride to the rescue, once they come out of warp, they get confronted by the pack lids, and they're about to meet the same fate. And as um, my older one pointed out, Captain Freeman pulled a big brain move when she ordered them to stand down from warp, and her reasoning was the Solvang would have done the same thing, and look what it got them. So we're not going to do it. And it turns out that saves the ship. So gold star for Captain Freeman. She's quite a captain, isn't she? And star, she's thinking outside of the box for Starfleet protocol here too. Um, you know, was there any way that the Solvang could have been saved? You know, I found myself thinking that. What do you guys think? Is it really just? It all depends on how good the captain is. Or first officer. So like they do get shields up quickly and order evasive maneuvers. Uh, but you really have to know when to fire on the spitting probe that comes out of nowhere. And are you on the trigger finger like that when you're the second contact vessel? So it's a little, I, I don't think there's any issues of dereliction of duty. They responded as quickly as they could. You know, it's kind of like the loss of the Grissom in Star Trek Three, that they got pounced. And while they did take evasive maneuvers, that wasn't, it wasn't unreasonable. Uh, they didn't know what they were up against and what was going to happen to them. Have you read the novel? Oh, Go ahead, Steve. Uh, um, let, let me just hit this point and hand it off to you then, Nari. But uh, the USS Grissom, Star Trek Three, when it's taken down, have you read the novelization of Star Trek Three? It's a little different how it goes down. Can, can I actually did. Captain J.T. Esteban, you know, I, I, in the, I was yelling at the screen, you know, raise shields, raise shields, that'll do it. Um, then I got the technical readouts for the Grissom in Star Trek, the role-playing game, and I saw that the shield power wasn't strong enough to withstand a Klingon photon torpedo. Again, my level of nerdiness. Um, but in the in the novelization, J.T. Esteban does call, Captain Esteban calls for shields and evasive maneuvers. But it's clear the Grissom, although she has some weaponry because Kirk says, oh, will she join us or will she fire upon us? She's a primar primarily a science vessel, not built for war, uh, cannot stand up to a scout class vessel or a cruiser. So, I mean, that's it. You know, that, the Grissom was was done. The moment that the bird of prey uncloaked, she was done. Mm -hmm. The In the movie, they he does get shields up and he does save evasive maneuvers. He's but a stand pervasive right yeah so they, they they do get it but um yeah they they were outgunned i mean the only thing they could have done would be warp away 
And I don't know if that was, if they could have even pulled that off. So I, I was just going to add, I agree that I don't think any person could have reacted faster in this circumstance. I do think, though, that since we're in the 24th century, they should probably have some kind of safety protocol here <laughs> that you have to override if a physical object has just anchored itself into your warp nacelle. <laughs> Yeah. And how often does that happen? So, like, is that foreseeable? Like, no, no, that... no. I, I, I agree. Just, just, just you know, for the next time. But, you know, so that you don't have this kind of thing, because by the time the captain could have figured out what was going to happen, there was just no reaction that was possible. Yeah. And so sad. This was a brand new ship, and the captain's saying she doesn't even want to tear off the. Uh, that was you know, totally the, me, by the way. I leave that on my my me too. smartphones as long as possible. Yes, smartphones, tablets. You know, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to tear it off either because it's as long as it's on there, it's new. Exactly. Okay. I, I don't do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> a little wow. bit of OCDness on the part of the captain. Um, <laughs> So we get in another, we meet another character, and this is fascinating. Uh, we meet an exocomp who names herself Peanut Hamper. Mathematically perfect name. A, yes, the scientifically, objectively perfect name, uh, <laughs> which Tendi loves, of course, a Tendi stamp of approval. So the exocomp is a callback to an earlier Next Generation episode where we learn that these machines or whatever you want to call them, uh, automations that are built become sentient and they are life forms and they have rights. They, they have to be recognized. We don't know ultimately what happens to them. We don't hear really much about them until this episode. So Peanut Hamper is a member of Starfleet and this is like other situations where alien, new life is encountered and ultimately ends up joining Starfleet. And this happens with the Hortas, Devil in the Dark, I don't know if we see a Horta on screen in a live action show. We see them in the comics uh, and they show up in the novels, but apparently the Hortas, you know, do join Starfleet as well. Um, getting back to how do you treat people and Tendi doesn't know what to do. And she talks to Rutherford who Rutherford appears to be sort of the sage of wisdom here, but he just says, treat peanut hamper like you treat everybody else. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump ahead a little bit now. And just sticking with Peanut Hamper, later on, she gets a chance to make a huge difference and save the ship. Uh, when Mariner and Rutherford come up with this program, a virus, to stop the Packled ship, but they have to insert the virus into the Packled's computer system. They need someone that can survive the vacuum of space, and they all think, wait, Peanut Hamper would be perfect. She refuses a direct order. And she just starts to laugh a little bit and says, well, you know, I just kind of joined Starfleet to piss off my dad. Sucks to be organic. And then she just takes off. So, I mean, this is just horrifying, right, from a military um, chain of command perspective. But what, what do you guys think here? Yeah. Article 92. Yeah. <laughs> duty, refusing an order. Uh, just a bad shipmate. She deserves to float in the vacuum of space saying, help me over and over again, because... Screw her. Um, well, so there's, yeah, so there's there's failure to obey order regulation, dereliction of duty. There's also Article 85 desertion. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. I'm a member of the armed forces, and we usually consider Starfleet to be armed forces. 
who uh, quits his unit, organization, or place of duty with intent to avoid hazardous duty or shirk important service is guilty of desertion. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, this is horrifying, right? I mean, their their order. She could save everyone, and she she says, "No, forget it. See you later. I'm out of here." I mean, oh my if god! This were a time of war. This is one of those offenses in the UCMJ that is punishable by death. If we're not in time of war, she would still get a very serious punishment, but it wouldn't be death. So, sh should the crew have done something else? I mean, she sort of self transports out of there before they can, but. Um, is should they have done something else here? You know, fired a shot at her or something? I don't know. Uh, so the the desertion stat or the desertion code in the UCMJ talks about uh, punishment as a court martial may direct. Um, I believe there's a very limited class of crimes. Um, so, for example, if somebody uh, you know acts unbecoming in the presence of an enemy in the time of war, that's like the only circumstance under which there you can actually be executed on the spot but that's a very very limited circumstance here i don't i'm trying to recall the scene i don't believe they're in the presence of the enemy when this is when oh. this is happening they just repelled some borders they're in sick bay captain freeman says did we save the cerritos yet no not yet but we have a plan how are we going to do this oh peanut hamper could do it. And then she right. says, yeah, I don't think so. I think so. You could actually have some argument about whether or not that counts because, you know, it's not that far removed in both time and space from when the enemy was there. But I think just playing peanut hamper's advocate here, <laughs> this was not presence of the enemy. Also, even though this is a serious military conflict, I don't know that this is actually war has yet been declared. In fact, I think this would fall under piracy. It, I agree. Uh, so in, I agree with piracy. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but in any event, that, that doesn't mean this isn't a serious offense. It just means that they probably shouldn't shoot her. They probably should try to arrest her um, so that she can face that court-martial. I will say, agreeing with Josh here, that any punishment that court-martial probably would have inflicted, though, is probably less bad than what did happen to her. So in the karmic justice world, I think Starfleet did the right thing. That <laughs> Go ahead, Josh. They do come up with the alternative plan. It's Jax and Rutherford. Rutherford, right. They're the own team, the A team. I got you. And, you know, I always liked Jax, but this made me love him. And oh, yeah. Because it was, it was so Star Trek. <laughs> like, it was. And there was there was no doubt, not for a second, that he would sacrifice himself if necessary to save fellow crew members, to save his ship. Just um, you know, I, I have some thought that maybe Jacks. We haven't seen the last of him. He could have been transported out at the last moment, perhaps. That would be some crazy B B subplot. But uh, it looks like he gave a you know he went down like Spock, you know, saving the saving the ship. I, I actually have. Uh, mixed feelings on that because Jax and Rutherford go on board the pirate ship to save the Cerritos. That's the goal. They're accomplishing the, the mission and the countdown's on. So they're going to win no matter what at this point because granted the issue is do we both die or do I die? 
And I think Jax's sacrifice is similar to either way, I'm going to end up dead. And, and maybe that's still debatable. Maybe they could have used the shuttle to both get out. But the fact he went out of his way to say, to save baby bear. And, and that to me, just put it in a slightly different category because it wasn't like yeah. the needs of the many. It was, I'm saving this dude. So that way we both don't die. Because that way our ship is going to get away because of what we're doing, but we both don't have to die. Which makes this sacrifice more intimate. Because, yeah, the it was their joint efforts that saved the Cerritos, but it was Jackson, Jax's actions that save Rutherford. So I'll raise a glass to uh <laughs> to the security officer Shax. Yeah. That crazy Pajoran who like uh Tasha Yar doesn't make it out of season one. I was just gonna say this. Oh like my god. <laughs> the contradiction of security officers who do not survive. <laughs> Although I'd say he went down much more heroically than uh, Tasha, whose death was initially meaningless yeah. until the Enterprise came around. Um, oh, I wanted to make a quick correction. I just checked, and the thing about you know misbehavior in the presence of an enemy, even in that circumstance, you need a court martial. So there's um, got to be some due process. Wanna, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just want to emphasize because this is something that we've also talked about in other podcasts. There is a perception that the military and the law don't really mix. But while generally speaking, you do have certain reduced rights when you're a member of the military. One of the things you don't give up is due process. There's tons right. of process yes. in, in the military before someone can be punished. So continuing the theme of uh, one of the main themes of the episode, which is, you know, Starfleet, Starfleet protocol may not be enough and it can't account for every situation out there. The Cerritos is in trouble. We're backing up just a moment here. The Cerritos is in trouble. And Captain Freeman, in her wisdom, realizes that she can't come up with a solution. So she turns to her daughter, Mariner, and says, I want you to come up with a solution that is so far out of protocol and uh, outside the books that it's totally going to, you know, cheese me off. Um, and then just like that, you know, Mariner flips a switch and then she takes control. So this is kind of interesting. And this reminded me, um, again, me and my wild references, but... Uh, many comic superheroes are justified in this way, like Batman, because the the justification for the existence of these heroes is that they can go in the places where the rules cannot. Um, when someone has to get their hands dirty or go into this gray area, it's sort of like you know calling the black ops or whatever, um, and you 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 know that something has to get done for the greater good, but you don't know that it can be done within the rules. And that's essentially what Freeman is saying, that, you know, I'm out of options. I want you to come up with something that's just totally wild and crazy and would never be considered under Starfleet regulations. And she does. Uh, and she runs with it. So she comes up with this idea of the virus. And then as they're retreating from the bridge and they're about to repel a boarding party, they're in trouble. And nope, you know, Mariner to the rescue. She pulls out all these contraband weapons, which probably help them quite a bit. So again, you know, we're bending Starfleet protocol, but it appears that, you know, do the ends justify the means? I don't know. I'll just pose the question, but what do you guys think? 
I will answer narrowly in the affirmative, which is that I generally don't think that that's a good way to think about things, but what's being sacrificed here is not core principles. And this is kind of, you know, calling back to the previous episode, you know, uh, Mariner hates protocol, but she doesn't hate the ship. She doesn't hate her mom. She doesn't hate the Federation. Um, and so if it's one thing, if what you're saying is we need to jettison core principles um, because, you know, this is an existential threat or because it's inconvenient or costly. It's another thing to say that we can cut a corner of a not so essential rule. <laughs> um in order to preserve those core principles um so in this case and i want to contrast this with an episode with an episode of discovery in which this exact uh, problem came up except on the side of you know we need to jettison our core principles so that we survive but if you survive and you have jettisoned your core principles what are you so it's a matter of degree in your mind um nari yeah. yes the contraband eh. <laughs> yeah you know but she has the collection Big deal, yeah. Right, right. It's that triple was for personal use, and which does make me wonder what that was. But, uh, but that was entertaining, uh, and we get to see she knows how to wield a batleth fairly well. Uh, Very well. And uh, yeah, it was a nice no holds bar. Uh, slugfest, and we get to see uh, Ransom just using his fists. So it was uh, <laughs> it was nicely done. Do you want to comment on that question? You know, the ends justify the means, there, Josh. Or what, what do you think? No, they don't. Uh, they don't, because what are we if you you know take that position that values don't matter, rules don't matter. I'll just do whatever I want because I can, you know, then you're just rationalizing all behavior. No, that, that's, that's not acceptable. Having, so I got my secret stash of stuff and I just happened to like collecting this and it turned out to be useful. It's like, yeah, you know, the rules don't have to be inflexible. Uh, but that doesn't mean that. Yeah. That's another thing we've talked about. Yeah. It's one thing. It's like, okay, so, we're gonna have a, you know, kind of the the emergency shoot, like you know the 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 DC kit that that could be, you know, we'll just have some things in, you know, in case of emergency, break glass because it's it's like oh wow we have to break go to the armory in order to arm ourselves. Okay, that didn't work out well. You know the fact that they all survived. The issue could then be okay. I'm not gonna reprimand you because we all lived. So. But you're going to put the brakes on getting things that are like truly inherently dangerous. Like, like you're going to uh, get an animal that can just kill people. Like stuff like, 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 trees. yeah, like, yeah. Again, oh, again, if they eat all your food, you know, and you have yeah. to have to have a mighty Klingon raiding party to slaughter triples, which again, things makes me think of Odo and Worf. Uh, but, uh, uh, <laughs> anywho, uh, but you know, the, the lesson is like, we're going to have to redesign things. Like we need to, if, if this happens again, you know, what else, what else could we do here? And, and that also means think proactively, like, okay, this time it was weapons that we didn't have. What if it's damage control gear? Like, is that in a ready accessible place in each compartment or is it, in the back in the lazarette where 
far away from the bridge. So if there's a hole breach, you're screwed. So what, what, what makes sense? So it's a good reason to be reflective. And also inventory, what did Mariner have? Because again, if she had, where's a biological weapon? It's like, oh, honey, no. As opposed to like, yeah, I, I just happen to have this collection of Klingon knives and swords. It's like, okay, we're going to let that slide. <laughs> I just happen to have a Genesis yeah. device. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah like, the equivalent of the A-bomb, the yeah. It's, so what, it's proto-matter. It's fine. It's fine. You know, like, it's just, yeah. or a metrogenic weapon, like stuff like that. Just yeah, be, yeah. Right. For the DS9 reference, you know, just, um, yeah, not good. And yeah, I generally agree with you, Josh. Um, I think also Voyage, just to add one more thought, I think Voyager is one of the shows that dealt with this most frequently. Um, you know, at, setting aside Discovery, which like I said, actually, you know, really confronted this head on at one point, but just because, you know, Voyager was constantly in an existential crisis. Um, and just having to, you know, make frequent, uh, you know, decisions over the course of that series um, about whether or not to bend rules, whether or not to jettison Starfleet protocols like selling Federation technology and things like that. Um, and, and often faced with, you know, not necessarily certain death, but I can do this and follow rules and there'll be like 80% chance that we just don't make it. <laughs> so this has been, as you you guys point out this has been a recurring theme throughout the season and you know the season all the episodes were very well written and tied together um exploring different facets of the same themes this theme being you know sh should the rules be flexible and what happens when they are not you know we saw this earlier with what boimler time and you know having you know the uh, additional time the built-in time to, extra time to do things which ended up being necessary because we are we are not just um, you know blind automatons. We are people, individuals, and you know we can't just blindly follow rules. So very and the laws do not always foresee every possible circumstance. And they have the ability to be changed. You yep. know that was built in. So you know. well, the the other thing that I was trying to the point I was trying to make is laws aren't written proactively. That nobody says, hey, this would be a good idea they're usually somebody's epitaph. So the fact that, <laughs> that you know, like the- If only they had blank, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, darn. If only there was enough lifeboats for everybody. Like, it's like, it's something like that. It's like, oh, oh, let's, we're, we're gonna rethink this right now. Well, how yeah. do you, you know, how can I use this, this crisis to go, what did we learn? how can we have a holistic approach and not do something haphazard in response? So the, the lifeboat example from Titanic, well, one of the responses to that was they fixated on lifeboats. They didn't, they didn't think holistically about what needs to happen to keep ships up safe. So in Chicago, there was a company that was massive that would rent out, I think, Mackinac Island for big annual company picnic. And one of the giant ferries, which was like a mini cruise ship that was supposed to take people to the island, was now had more lifeboats on it that, that it was designed to carry. Because it was now designed, it was now had lifeboats for enough people, but that was not what the ship was designed for. 
So the vessel capsized at the dock, killing hundreds of people. And yeah, it's like, it's like there was a Stuff You Missed in History podcast about it and uh, saw another one seeing actual like photos of, of the vessel on its side. It's like, yeah, that's not good. So you can't fixate on the one thing that happened. You have to think big picture of like, okay, this time it was armory, but what else makes sense? And you can't have everything there at the same time. So like, you, know, you shouldn't make the bulkheads yeah, made of faces. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, and is like, could you have stuff in quantum storage? So that way that you could like grab what you need and that way it's not taking up a ton of space. But can that work if the power goes out? Okay, like what are the, what are the options here for this to make sense? So if it's the damage control kit or something to repel borders or whatever else you might need, you know, and unfortunately history is the best example to figure that out. It's really hard to figure out something proactively of like, you know, do we need gas masks? It's like, "Mm, maybe if there's a fire, yeah, you're going to want that in order to get out, but will that fit? Like, does it make sense? So how do, how do you do that? So, well, hey guys, my, my battery on my device is running low and it's almost midnight where I am. Um, I would like to request that Steve or Josh, one of you guys lead us in a conclusion of this episode Absolutely. <laughs> or the season. Yeah, actually, the season. Why don't you so, say something, Ari? Why don't you close us out? Say, say what you, yes. If you're running out of power, close us out, Nari. Bring uh, us home. Hurry, hurry. Sure. I just want to, I just, yes, I just want to emphasize that, you know, and I think there's been a healthy amount of disagreement um, in this panel about whether or not this is sort of one of the big takeaways. But for me, one of the big takeaways from this show remains that, um, you know, especially in an idyllic future, um, perhaps it is okay, if not good, to consider where you are and what you are doing and to be happy (laughs) if in fact that is what you love doing and that is where you love being. Um, And that, you know, the lack of a desire to go somewhere else and be someone else is not itself always a bad thing. So I think that's some strong reflection, some strong self-reflection that could apply to most people. Um, And I, I would include, you know, myself and other folks I know certainly in that as well. Uh, we, we get some, you know, we get some more examples of that at the conclusion of this episode. Well, um, I do want to geek out a little bit about the Titan, but just following up on what you were saying, Nari, you know, the Cerritos, they have a chance to upgrade it, to improve it, to make it stronger, faster, all these things. Uh, and Catherine Freeman says, no, she says she wants the Cerritos exactly as she was. Uh, that seems to echo the overall theme. Be happy with where you are, what you have. Don't just keep trying to look up and onwards, outwards, or whatnot. Um, you know, some really interesting things. You know, Freeman seems to kind of have things under control, as did Rutherford, even though he loses his memory. But it doesn't seem to bother him. He seems to be okay. Um, so the Star Trek geeking out for a moment, the Titan comes in, swoops in to save them. But there's another ship coming in. We see the Titan, which was referenced in Star Trek Nemesis and has been the subject of some novels. Uh, and we get a rousing rendition of the Next Generation theme as the Titan just blasts away at the pack lids. And we get some great back and forth between Riker and um, 
Mariner who apparently know each other. Um, of course I know Will. Where do you think I get my supply, you know, of Romulan ale? What was that from Deanna? You know, so we get, you know, it's just a, a Valentine that we get to see some beloved characters. The Titan comes in, saves them. Riker swoops in, you know, to the rescue. Um, what did you guys, like, I, I had, I certainly had a reaction, but I'd love to hear what you guys thought when, when you, when this happened, when you watched this. My, I just want to say my first reaction was, uh, you can hear how excited <laughs> they were to be in this episode. I think it's Jonathan yes. Drake's. Is that how you the pronounce Marina. it? Yeah. Um, and, and you could also tell he, I, I think I want to give him credit. He really adapted also the acting style here to be a little more fast paced and how he was delivering the lines to suit the show. But you could just, I think, I think the joy of being part of this just came through very, right away. It was awesome. <laughs> yes, Josh. It was beautiful. And I, I want to highlight, it was beautiful seeing the Lower Decks crew on their bridge, Mariner in the captain's chair and Boimler at the helm. And, Good point. And, yes. and them taking charge and and working with mom, who, you know, to, yes. to do what mommy said to get them the hell out of there. So I want to, that's important. But it was beautiful seeing the Titan go in and not mince words. Like it's continuous fire blowing the hell out of everything. And Riker is depicted as the space cowboy fairly seriously. And it's glorious. It is absolutely glorious. I will admit, I stood up, I cheered, I pointed at the TV. My kids thought I was crazy. And I said, but, but, but it's Captain Riker, don't you see? Oh my God, oh my God. And yeah, there was that. <laughs> I also love the Enterprise reference with him going, well, they really spent a long time getting from there to here. And it was just like, well done. Um, <laughs> Every every series should should end with an appearance from Will Riker because that that's just very zen if they start doing that. <laughs> uh, but it was very fun. It was very fun. Awesome, an awesome appearance, and not just a cameo because they played a huge role. They, they saved the bacon for the uh, Cerritos. And and it's possible that they will be coming back for the second season if we continue to see the adventures. Uh, they will. They already they already confirmed that. Okay. Wow. You could stay on the oh, Titan. So yeah. So we'll get to see them on the Lower Decks. Yeah. So I, the Lower Decks crew has been broken up. <laughs> so we'll see how long he's on Titan, but it's uh, yeah. They they they're gonna. As much as I want to see the Cerritos crew reunited, I hope that he stays lasts on the Titan for at least a few episodes. Yeah, <laughs> that he does better than that other um, you know colleague of theirs who did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who failed, failed upwards. upwards and then failed out. <laughs> yeah. um, so Thank wrapping God. up just thematically, um, the issue about Starfleet policy, we get peace between mother and daughter, Captain Freeman and Ensign, I guess she's Ensign still, Mariner. Um, when in, Mariner points out, well, that's Starfleet. You know, they're, we're good at observing, but bad at maintaining. And that's an interesting dichotomy. And I think she's got a lot of evidence to support her, her point. Captain Freeman, then, in her wisdom, as I think a great captain, realizes that protocol can only take you so far. And she said, we, you know, we can't just assume people are going to keep doing the right thing a generation down the road. So maybe we do need to bend Starfleet protocol sometime. So they agree to work together. And Freeman even admits, like, I can't do these things. I would lose my command. 
Um, but I want you to kind of do what you do best. Let's work together. And Mariner realized, well, we could both end up in, in the brig together then, but okay. So we have a new understanding now between mother and daughter and emerging of kind of approaches. Uh, Josh. There was also, don't tell your father. So that was, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, we haven't seen a lot of him. So I don't know who Mariner takes after more or if she's a, truly a product of both because that's that's an interesting question. Is she like more like mom or is she more like dad or is it qualities of both uh, that that are at play? And, and that's just family relationships. So if we have the battery power, I'll ask for each of you to give a closing thought and maybe if you can pick out maybe a favorite moment from the season one. Nari, go first, please. Favorite moment favorite moment <laughs> you know i'm gonna go with the first thing that came to mind which was i i still think my favorite characters in this not notwithstanding riker and troy because of course i love the callback characters um are still tendy and rutherford and i really love the conclusion of the season finale um involving them in which tendy realizes that rutherford her best friend and potential yeah. romantic interest uh, has lost all of his memory but rather than reacting that this is a tragedy, which is I think most of us would do, she is overjoyed because she, now she gets to uh, develop that relationship and become best friends all over again. <laughs> uh, that's probably my favorite. That one. was very sweet. Yeah, very, very, very cool. Josh. There are so many, but part of me, part of, I know. I know. Part of me will always go back to Rutherford killing Badgie. That's uh, uh, snapping uh, his neck and shh, shh, shh. <laughs> was just... and crying and yeah <laughs> no yeah that was just so well done uh, but there's there's a lot of beautiful things about this I'd actually have to go back and look at notes to figure out what I enjoyed the most. See, this is why I went with first instance. Exactly. You can't, you, you will yep, overthink yep. this. <laughs> I just, again, my, my offbeat sense of humor, that was a ton of fun. Uh, as is, um, yeah, it's, I, there's so much there. Um, again, I did like uh, Ransom fighting the alien that was secretly smart. I, <laughs> that oh, was cool. That was so good. Why don't we? System with, you know, judges. with the judge and you know i like to read a lot you know <laughs> or you know the, the trial episode also with uh yes that is correct i just mm, can totally see a witness doing that that's uh my uh drop yes. mic yes. yeah there's yes. a long list of great moments. Yeah, it speaks to the strength of the show that we're having so much trouble choosing just one favorite moment because there were so many great ones um, really quick, I will say, actually, I was going to say the trial episode, Lower Decks does such a good job of continually challenging what we think is happening or what we expect from a character, and they keep doing something unexpected. Uh, Tendi, who we think is just, you know, happy to be there and dust the chairs in uh, the ready room. Oh, my God, she turns out to be this Black Ops incredible like ninja warrior, um, you know, the cleanup person, literally and figuratively. Then when confronted, wait, no, you did not wipe the floor with a whole bunch of Romulus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. 
um, you know, her and the whole episode, you know, was just outstanding. I thought just continually challenging what we thought was going on and just turning the tables on us. So just brilliant work. Yeah, Rutherford doing the fan dance. I just, Oh, and the wedding. Oh my god! So well done. I, I literally, it's it's hard to pick, and it's interesting to see like what characters I gravitate towards. It's like Rutherford and Tendi uh, tend to be high on my list uh, for offbeat, fun sense of humor. So they're sort of the yeah. They're sort of like the lower decks of the lower decks because the main characters are Boimler and Mariner. And I, you know, at the end of the trial episode too, um, you know, the captain's like, oh, we'll be more clear from now on. Oh, so was there a secret mission? Did you steal a raw man cloaking device? Did you do, oh, well, I I don't know. Hey, Captain Clarity, you know, Captain Clarity. (laughs) Mariners, she's pretty awesome. Yes, absolutely. So again, I mean, this show brings me joy and you know, they, it, it's so necessary right now because, again, everyone's stressed out. Everyone, you know. This has been a rough you know, year for Sure, everybody. when you think about all that we've lost, everyone's lost something. Everyone's under stress. And there's pressure. You know, was it uh, 8 billion people now living in poverty? Over 216,000 have died from COVID there's reasons for stress and having a show that highlights optimism that's funny as hell is such a welcome release after feeling beat up and stressed out day in and day out so i it's it's what i love about it agreed I agree. I'm going to be very, I am very sad that this was the oh, You can pick up with Discovery, Nari, which has just started. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll leave with this question. I don't know if we want to discuss it because I, 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 I want to be respectful of time and we're, we're pretty late. But, um, and maybe the audience can answer. Why did the crew of the Titan have the DS9 type uniforms, the gray uniforms with the color you know, inside, whereas the crew of the Cerritos had the you know, monochrome colored, you know, the uniforms more seen on the next generation. Uh, they're all in Starfleet. You know, did someone not get a memo about the uniform changes? They could still, uh, they actually talked about that in an article with one of the, one of the showrunners. And there's an issue of, they, he described it as Starfleet understands scarcity, that they're still doing a uniform switch out. So, because uh, it wouldn't be, uh, apparently getting the entire fleet to switch at once would be hard which was even referenced in um, uh, Discovery Season 2 with uh, from Captain Captain Pike comes on. He's like, at least we got the new uniforms. So like there was that reference. And in DS9, when they did the uniform switch after First Contact came out, you did see overlap. So that there were people coming in from other ships that still had the um, the older uniforms that were still getting switched out. So I think that would be the issue. Uh, and the other thing that would come to mind is some ships in the Navy might have inconsistent underway uniforms. Notably, the, most, the biggest example would be submariners 
uh, that at least in the old days, you know, you could see submariners in like a flight suit type type of out uh, uniform mm. while underway. Um, but that might be worn on the surface now, or I don't know if they all wear the same BDUs now, because again, I don't follow it that closely, but that would be my guess of maybe different ships, different missions. But the admirals all had the uniforms consistent with the Cerritos crew. So I think the Titan just being out doing their thing, their mission, they probably haven't made the switch yet. Well, with that, I think that wraps up the season. Um, and I'll just turn it back over to you, Josh, to sign us off. Thank you all. We will continue talking about nerd things from Star Trek to uh, Mandalorian season two when that picks up. And uh, uh, safe place. Okay. Uh, and, and having just watched the first episode of Discovery, uh, I'm very excited to talk about that. So we'll, we'll see about switching gears to talk about Discovery as well. So with that, everyone, thank you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and live long and prosper. <laughs>